A public exploit for a critical exchange bug, crooks camping out inside GoDaddy's network, and GitHub cookie leakage. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. And Paul, I know you love when we start the show with some housekeeping. And some housekeeping this week is your piece on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. It is more of a visual piece, so we will direct people over to nakedsecurity.sofos.com to watch the video, but give them a taste of what they might see and hear in this wonderful video. Uh, yes, before I do that, let me just say there is a full transcript. So if you don't like videos, if you can read faster than you can watch, or if you just want to follow along, full text version there. Basically, this is a video we made two years ago, the last US Thanksgiving before lockdown hit us all. Simpler uh, times. When we were in the office. Well, <laughs> simpler times, but similar times. In many countries, there's a little bit less lockdown than there was. So it's kind of like we're back to that old school Black Friday, isn't it, where we probably will go to the shops, the stores, and we might buy online, and we'll probably do a bit of both. As you know, at this time of year, the media's full of, whoa, cybersecurity tips for Black Friday. Here's a Black Friday special that you can pay less money. And you're thinking, great, don't mind that. But actually, there's more to cybersecurity than worrying about Black Friday. Although the crooks love Black Friday, Cyber Monday, heck, they love Christmas sales, they love Boxing Day sales, they love New Year sales. There's always some event or issue that the crooks can hang their hat on that some people will consider important. The goal of that video and of the transcript is to persuade you that cybersecurity is worth doing well all year round. It's not a big ask. You can do it. You just have to want to do so. So that's what it's all about, Doug. Not that I feel strongly about it. No, no, sir. All right. That is Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Here's what you really need to do over on nakedsecurity.sofos.com. And Paul, we like to begin the show with a fun fact. And this is a fun, fun fact, if I do say so myself. The longest supported version of Windows was Windows 1.0. Microsoft supported its first GUI-based software offering for 16 years until the end of 2001, even though Windows 2.0 was released two years after it. You mean they kept on supporting it until somebody started using it? Being a little bit facetious there, but yeah, I could never quite get Windows 1. The problem was that screens were typically CGA or maybe EGA in those days, weren't they? So mm -hmm. by the time the mouse cursor was the size of a small spade, <laughs> and it was like moving a shovel around the screen. Window decorations, there was no computing power to make them graceful and slender and slightly curved corners and all of that stuff. It might be okay if you had thousands and thousands of dollars to spend on a special graphics card, and then you had to gamble whether Windows would even support it. Well, hold those thoughts, because I don't want to spoil the This Week in Tech History segment, but we may be talking about Windows 1.0 a little bit later in the show as well. Don't know whether to look forward to that or to be very, very afraid. Well, we can stay with the theme of Microsoft with this first story. This is an exchange bug that oh boy, yes. uh, has a public exploit, so it is time to patch. But what's going on here? Well, Doug, this bug to give it its full name, is CVE-2021-42321. Two, two, 
technically, when it was announced by Microsoft this month's November 2021 Patch Tuesday, technically it was a zero day. In other words, somebody, we don't know who, was apparently using this exploit before Microsoft was able to patch it because it's officially listed as exploitation detected, meaning the crooks got there first. So there was a certain urgency or importance to patching it back then, but there wasn't any evidence that this thing had been widely used. So I don't think people got the impression that this was a clear and present danger. To any of our listeners who do like to hang around with their patches for a few weeks, see how it goes for everyone else, the problem with this one is that somebody has effectively reverse engineered the patch, uh, as far as we can tell, and they've come up with a publicly posted proof of concept that basically shows anybody who wants to how they can exploit this. So if you haven't yet patched, you're not just at risk from this mysterious, unknown, probably quite selective band of cyber crooks or online attackers. You can now basically be pwned by anybody. Okay, and for this exploit to work, you'd need to be effectively an admin on the Exchange server, which leads to a whole host of other problems. Is that right? Well, I don't think you need to be an admin on the server because it is a remote code execution hole. So you get to trick the server into running code that it's not supposed to. However, it is what's called authenticated remote code execution. So it's not just that anybody from anywhere in the world with a network connection that terminates at your exchange server can send it some kind of rogue message and the server will trip over itself. It's as though you have to be logged into the network. You have to be signed in to an email account, essentially, first. Okay, got it. So it's not the end of the world in terms of, my golly, mail servers, they typically are exposed to the internet. Anybody can just wander in. That's why it's known as an authenticated remote code execution. But generally, just because somebody has, say, signed in to read their email, that's not supposed to give them the right to decide what software they'd like to install, possibly secretly, in the background yeah. on the mail server. <laughs> this is still a very serious problem, because when you think about the kind of stuff that goes on on the mail server, it's an ideal place for crooks to put in spyware, memory snooping malware, email generating malware. If you can take over the mail server, you can pretty much snoop on anybody's email and, of course, all of, all of the other stuff that you see going on on a server which is typically in a slightly more privileged part of the network. Okay, and then this proof of concept is in and of itself relatively innocuous as it just opens up the Paint app to show that it works on the target machine, but it also, this researcher linked to kind of a gray hat tool so you can roll your own exploit. Yes, I think that's a fair way of describing it. Chang, five uh, Gs. It's not a typo if you read the article. I haven't got a problem with my keyboard. <laughs> it's J-A-N followed by five Gs. He's got a tweet that explains, hey, here's the, here's the link to GitHub. <laughs> Isn't it an irony? Microsoft GitHub now has the source code to let you experiment with this particular <laughs> bug. Uh, now, don't to get sidetracked by the ethics of publishing the proof of concept in the first place. You can say that there's a good purpose for that. Because if you were to run it and all that happens is MS Paint comes up, well, that can be handy if all you want to do is see, for example, for any exploit, what network traffic does it generate? 
What sequence of system calls does it generate? What has to happen in what order? That's quite good if you want to try out your defensive technology against the exploit rather than what the exploit ultimately delivers, because both of those things are obviously important when you're talking about detection and prevention. But as you say, he's also got, I think it's a pinned tweet now. Loosely speaking, it says, yes, guys, I know that I know that the original proof of concept lets you ask the targeted computer to do something, but here's a tool that will let you generate what's called shellcode. And that pretty much means that there's a way that you can repurpose the proof of concept so you can instruct the victim server to do anything you want. That's a theory. If you want to think that Patch Tuesday is often followed by weaponized Wednesday, then I think that's where we are in this case. And as far as advice goes for people, I'm going to go out on a short limb and say, I mean, I am not as expert in the cybersecurity world as Paul is, but I think that people should patch. I think that's great. As you know, we usually say patch early, patch often. That's four words. This time in the article I wrote, patch at once. And I allowed myself a slightly naughty exclamation point, Doug, because as far as I understand it, if you patch this, problem sorted. Just by the way, uh, this affects Exchange 2016 and Exchange 2019. There was a one-day period, November the 16th, Microsoft upgraded its security bullet and said, oh, actually, Exchange 2013 is also affected. And then the very next day, they actually said, oh, no, we've, we've taken it off the list again because it's not affected. So it's Exchange 2016 and Exchange 2019. And we put a link in the Naked Security article to a thing called healthchecker.ps1, which is an official Microsoft PowerShell script that will interrogate your Exchange server and come out with a list of things that it thinks you might like to do to improve security. One of the things that it looks into is, are you up to date or not? So that's something you can do if you're worried. You might as well do it because even if you are patched, you might find other things that you hadn't even thought of. So use this as a reason to go and do a little bit of extra digging. And, you know, you might find something else that you can do to push back against the crooks. Okay, very good. That is Check Your Patches, public exploit now out for critical exchange bug on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Our next story, whew, GoDaddy admits to a password breach. Check your managed WordPress site. And uh, this could be a big one. It could, Doug. I'm hoping that given what we now know is that it hasn't turned into a massive problem. You could argue that if the data that could have been stolen was stolen and had been widely exploited, we'd know about it by now. But there's still a problem that there may still be some cyber criminality possible against affected users, even after all the automatic fixes that GoDaddy can put in place have been done, and we'll go into that in a minute. Loosely speaking, it seems that on the 17th of November 2021, GoDaddy realised that there were crooks in its network. They kicked them out, but then, of course, they had to figure out as fast as they could what did they do while they were in. It seems that they've already figured out quite a lot because they were able to report this pretty promptly, presumably as required, to the SEC, the US Securities and Exchange Commission. And uh, what GoDaddy has already been able to discover, apparently, is that the crooks acquired email addresses and customer numbers for 1.2 million customers of its managed WordPress product, that the crooks got 
access to usernames and passwords, in particular SFTP passwords for all active users. And they got access to the web certificates, the TLS, SSL, TLS private keys of some of those users. Unfortunately, all GoDaddy has said so far is that it's a subset of active users. So it could be anywhere from one to one million one hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. <laughs> they probably haven't figured that out yet. So you kind of have to assume that you're in the list. But worst of all, they realized that the crooks had been in since the 6th of September 2021. So there's a 10-week window during which if the crooks did exfiltrate and use the data that was available to them, that they could have sat on it, abused it, sold it on, or whatever else. So that's where we are. The good news is that all the affected passwords have now had a forced reset. So in theory, crooks who are able to wander in with the existing passwords can't do that anymore. And GoDaddy, it says they're in the process of disavowing and reissuing web certificates to everyone whose web certificate could have had the private keys compromised. But there's kind of a lot more to it than that. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, they, they didn't use the magic, uh, don't worry, your passwords were hashed and salted language. Oh, yes, there is that. Use. They said SFTP. SFTP is secure FTP. So that's like the old FTP protocol that was commonly used in days gone by for uploading and downloading content in bulk to things like web servers. But FTP was totally insecure. You could sniff passwords, you could sniff data. SFTP is to FTP what HTTPS is to HTTP. So it uses encryption so that people can't tamper with the stuff on the way. So SFTP is good, but they just said the SFTP passwords were exposed, which does strongly suggest that they had been stored in plain text form. Mm. And researchers at a company called WordFence, they make a WordPress security add-ons. They went and had a look and they went digging around in the official user interface for this service. And they discovered that there was a way that they could essentially click a button and reveal their SFTP password, which strongly suggests that it was being stored in some reversible way by GoDaddy, which, as everybody knows, in the modern era, you're really not supposed to do because you don't need to do it. You can salt, hash, stretch the password, and then you don't need to store the actual password. You just need to store a way of validating the password. So that's the bad news, because, of course, if someone gets a hash of your password, they still have to crack it. Unfortunately, if they get the plain text of your password, it means they can probably wander into your account as though they were just uploading new stuff. <laughs> of course, that means that even though you've now had your SFTP password reset, what if they just went in and left behind, say, an unexpected WordPress theme or plugin that lets them wander back in unnoticed forevermore? The password resets are great, but they're not enough. You do need to go and review all the content if you have one of these managed WordPress sites. So look in themes directories, plugin directories for anything that's not supposed to be there. And of course, they could have uploaded fake news. They could have put a little malware distribution subsite into your site. So you need to go and review all your content. Make sure that there are no unpleasant surprises left behind. We don't have any evidence yet that that has happened, but it certainly could have happened. And the only way to be sure is to check carefully. 
So that covers most of the advice we have in the article. So review your WordPress site files, review all the accounts on your site because of the SFTP portion of it. Yeah, so a fair amount of work for GoDaddy and a fair amount of work for people with these accounts because you, you need to go, like GoDaddy doesn't know which plugins that you've set up and which have been set up on your behalf without your knowledge and that kind of stuff. So exactly. this, this could take a while. So there is time. a limited, to be fair to them, there's a limited amount they can do to go, oh, well, this was obviously dodgy. Use this as a reason if you're one of these managed WordPress customers. Why not just use it as a reason to go and review all your content anyway, just to make sure that there are no files left visible on your website that you actually don't want there anymore. If you treat this as a, if you like, an excuse or a good reason to go and do a proper review and maybe go and look through all your plugins and go, you know what, I don't even, re I don't think the crooks put that there because it's been there since 2013, but I have no idea what it's for. I haven't used it for years. Maybe I should get rid of it. So you can turn this into a silver lining if you wish. And then, of course, when these big breaches happen, we like to kind of grade the response, the communication by the company? How do, we, how do we grade the response by GoDaddy in this instance, the actual notification that they sent out? Doug, I think I, if I were a managed WordPress customer of theirs, I would like to see more clarity about the passwords exposed. But what I did like about what they sent to the SEC is that, and I know this sounds trivial, but it isn't really, not in my opinion, they gave an apology and it was, in my opinion, unequivocal. They didn't go, you know, we take your security so seriously, but guess what happened? Some really, really, really amazing crooks. Oh, they took all of us by... <laughs> you know how it sometimes sounds? It mm -hmm. sounds like you and the company that had your, the data breach, it sounds like both of you were the unluckiest people in the whole world. They didn't do that. They just said, basically... This was bad. It shouldn't have happened. We are sorry. And we know that we have to learn from this and do better next time. So although that doesn't solve the problem, it does indicate an attitude that, in my opinion, is at least better than many data breach notifications that I personally have seen in the past. All right. That is GoDaddy. Admits to password breach. Check your managed WordPress site on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. It is time for This Week in Tech History, where we talked about the early days of Windows at the top of the show. And this week, in November of 1985, Microsoft released Windows 1.0. It ran as a program atop Microsoft's popular MS-DOS operating system and featured multitasking, an execution model, and an API for future development. Reviews were mostly negative. <laughs> that's, I think that's a modest way of putting it. You know, critics complained of slow performance, over-reliance on the <gasps> mouse, and an initial lack of dedicated applications. That being said, it was largely agreed that the platform itself had plenty of future potential. It ended up working. Microsoft Windows is still a thing. I mentioned that the reason that people didn't like the fact that it relied on a mouse is that, unlike the Mac, the average PC didn't come with a mouse. Mm -hmm. And mice, they weren't cheap in those days, were they? And some of them actually required a special add-on card, and then you needed some weird drivers that you had to install. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was all a whole new thing. And the fact that it wasn't just part of the system, I suppose that in modern language, you'd just call it meh, wouldn't you? M-E-H, possibly without even an exclamation point. I implore anyone within the sound of my voice that's interested to go to Wikipedia and look up Windows 1.0 and look at the screenshot they have there and... 
these, these low-resolution screens, and it's just, it's just, everything just kind of looks shoehorned. So it would take until Windows 3.0, 3.1 for things to really start cooking. Yeah. We talked about Windows 11 back a couple weeks ago, and uh, things have gotten much better. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how I've missed this until now, but when you just said Windows 11, I just had this sort of spinal tap flashback. Yeah, yeah Windows 11. goes up to 11, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I suppose it does. <laughs> um, if we talk about GitHub, which is also owned by Microsoft, this is a Microsoft-heavy show. Uh, you can upload just about anything to GitHub, but you might want to make sure you don't upload thousands of Firefox cookies by mistake, which is what happened. That's correct. Uh, we wrote this up on Naked Security, not because it's a massive danger. They're only about four and a half thousand instances in the past when we've looked at files that weren't supposed to be uploaded in in bulk to github you're looking might be at hundreds of thousands and perhaps of more serious files but the problem is that when you're working on an open source project or something where you've got a whole directory trees worth of files and you get to a point you think now i'm ready to upload these into a GitHub project where anybody can access them, and I'm going to announce this. It's kind of easy to go, right, here's the directory tree. So you just look through with the tools on your computer, and both Windows and Linux have the problem that not all the tools always tell you the full truth about files. So on Windows, file extensions often don't get displayed, so you can't be sure whether what you think is a PDF file isn't actually a VBS file by mistake. And on Linux and Unix, many system tools, if a file starts with a dot, full stop, period, hexadecimal 0x2e, decimal 46, if a file name starts with that magic dot character, that means I don't want to be bothered with this file all the time. Don't bother showing it to me unless I specially ask. But make sure the file exists and any program that wants to open it and read it and use it can do so. And that's where things like configuration files command shell history files can you see where this is going mm -hmm. uh, ssh private keys and things like firefox or mozilla cookies get stored so the problem is that sometimes you can look at a bunch of files you go through them all yep that's exactly what i want to upload you unleash some kind of program that says here's the directory tree i want you to upload from this special account where i've kept all these files and you don't review what that file is going to see as its list of files, guess what can happen? You upload all the hidden files along with the public ones. You could upload a whole load of dangerous stuff. In the past, the thing that everyone was worried about was SSH private keys, because on Linux and Unix, by default, they end up in a directory called .ssh, so you don't normally see it. And then in there, there'll typically be a file like id underscore rsa, for example which is the private key that you probably use for logging into the GitHub or source code account that you, you're, you're currently connected to. So people got used to that. Oh, don't upload your SSH private keys. It's obviously a blunder. So my understanding is that GitHub and various other services now go and aggressively try and look for those and go, no, 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 you do not want to do that. But there's no way that any centralized system can really keep an absolute list of every possible file that you probably didn't mean to upload. And this was a, a researcher who just happened to think, what if I search for the file called cookies.sqlite, which is a, a SQL database that Firefox uses to keep track of your cookies? 
which of course, as we know, can include things like authentication tokens, the very data that lets you log back in next time because you told the site, remember me. So it's not quite as dangerous as uploading your SSH private keys, but there's all sorts of juicy stuff in there that is never meant to be public. Mm -hmm. So guess where the cookies.sqlite file is stored? It's in a directory or under a directory called .mozilla. So many people don't even know that it's there. They never get to look at it. They don't bother themselves with it. If you upload it to a server like GitHub, along with a whole load of other stuff, bad idea. Because anyone who finds it or who deliberately goes looking for it or any other file that might contain useful personal information about you can quickly download that stuff. And then you'll be the victim of essentially what will be a targeted attack because based on your cookie file, but the attacker doesn't need to know that they're interested in you up front. They'll get interested in you because you made the blunder and they can search GitHub and find you made the blunder. So the simple advice is don't do that. <laughs> we do, what more can we do, I say? Yeah, we do have other <laughs> advice if we want to cover, but uh, yeah, don't do that is a, is a good one. So some of the advice here when, when you're uploading files for public use, I think you talked about this, make absolutely certain of which files you've included in your bundle and then also download your uploads as soon as they're public to check that nothing you've uploaded is, shouldn't be there. Absolutely. I think a lot of people forget that, that they upload the file and then they, they go in with the account they've just used and they check that it looks right. What you really need to do is ideally get somebody else, if you're in a programming team, somebody else to go in with a completely different account, not your account, to go in, download what you just made public and to look through it and advise you if they see anything in there that they go, what on earth is this image doing in that stash or whatever it might be? Because trying to review your own file upload is kind of like proofreading your own articles. It's amazingly difficult to spot typos, isn't it, in text you've just written, because you know what it's supposed to say. It's almost like you sort of see what you're expecting, not necessarily what's actually there. So you might as well do that just to make sure that you have uploaded A, what you were supposed to upload, B, what you were entitled to upload, particularly if it's open source, make sure you haven't accidentally included stuff that shouldn't be there because it's not covered by the license, and C, what you meant to upload and that you haven't accidentally included other stuff. And then two inconvenient but much safer things to do is to get in the habit of clearing your browser cookies regularly and to log out from sites as soon as you're done using them. Yes, I always recommend that. It's not always a popular recommendation because, as you say, it's inconvenient. Personally, I like the fact that every day I have to log back into all the sites I use routinely in my work during that day. And the reason I like that is it means that I can never be logged into a site by mistake. And my browser, I can never say, oh, I'll just look at Facebook, forget that I'm logged in and realize that if I accidentally click a like button, I won't get a pop-up saying you need to put in your password. It'll just work. I prefer to make things a little bit more difficult for myself because I know that firstly, it makes it much less likely that I will make a mistake. And secondly, it makes it much, much harder for the crooks. Because if they do get my browser, if they do get at my cookie stash, if they do get my authentication token, well, it won't be valid anymore once I've logged out. If it's not in your cookie file, then the crooks can no longer steal it. If they have already stolen it, but you log out, then the token that they've got becomes invalid. So you're reducing what you might call your time exposed to danger. 
Be careful out there, everybody. That is GitHub cookie leakage. Thousands of Firefox cookie files uploaded by mistake on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And we will move along to our oh no of the week. This is from Reddit user I deleted your Facebook, who writes, Years ago, I was the top contact for point-of-sale support for a high-end hotel chain in the U.S. One day, I got a call from our San Diego location. They were setting up six bar terminals for a Comic-Con event that evening, and all of them kept randomly shutting down and restarting. I was a bit mystified because it was happening randomly to each terminal as opposed to all at once. At one point, their on-site tech mentioned that it was kind of hard to read the screen, but I didn't think much of it. Oh, I think I know where this Yeah, you see where this is going? San Diego's a hint, isn't it? Uh Uh-huh. Everything looked fine from a network perspective until the machines would indeed randomly restart after 10 to 15 minutes. Very unusual behavior, and it wasn't affecting any of the 20-ish other identical terminals at the hotel. After speaking with the on-site tech for about 45 minutes, he reveals some key information while making chit-chat. Man, it's so hot out here. (laughs) Wait, are you outside? Yeah, and I think they said it was the hottest it's ever been this time of year. Okay, and these terminals are all outside? Yep. Are they in direct sunlight? Uh-huh. On the hottest day on record. Um, I think I figured out what is going on. Set up some umbrellas over the terminals, and let's hope there's no permanent damage. Yes, computers in the high heat. Not a good mixture. Umbrellas as cybersecurity tool. Yeah. So I bet you that waiters who are working at those terminals were pretty grateful as well to have a, to have a bit of sunshade. Yeah. Um, and the fact that you can't read the screen, but you're dealing with payments. If you're a retailer, always a bad idea. <laughs> yes. Measure twice, cut once, Doug. I remember reading way back when, when they were uh, shooting the uh, episode one of Star Wars. So it was the first um, of the new Star Warses to come out that they were shooting scenes in the desert. And they said that they were, quote, throwing away computers like Dixie Cups because they kept they were just melting in the, in the middle of the desert. They'd run all these special effects through them and they would just melt. They'd have to... Awesome. Probably not a great use of uh, resources and uh, poor recycling, but computers in the direct sunlight, it's, that's never a, good, never a good combo. Well, if you have an oh no that you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to... Stay out of the sun. Secure. (laughs) 